0: Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally." Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, please keep your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, how have you been finding our series in Deuteronomy? Has it been challenging? Uh, at times, kind of difficult, but I hope you've gotten a lot out of it because um, it's certainly been a great journey for me uh, as I've kind of preached through it. Um, I want to begin by asking you, just with the person next to you, uh, tell each other, when you go to a cafe, and if you have to order coffee, what coffee do you order? Go for it. All right, that shouldn't have taken too long, so how'd you go with that? Um, if you are a coffee lover, I wonder if you recognize or know even the difference between some of these coffees. I know that... Uh, the, the text is pretty small, but like for example, do you know the difference between uh, an espresso and a flat white and a cappuccino and a latte and an Americano and a macchiato? Do you know what a ristretto is? Do you know what a doppio is? Right? Some of you be like, yeah, I do. But probably the majority of us are like like, nah, no idea. I just know what I like. Okay? Who orders flat whites? Hands up. Okay? Who goes for cappuccinos? Who goes for lattes? who goes for, like, the strong, short black type thing, espressos, who goes for the long black, or the Americanos. Okay, I, 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 can, I can put up with any of those. I think they're all good, because I'm, I'm a big coffee lover. But I'll tell you one kind of coffee I have absolutely no tolerance of. And if you order this in a cafe, I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to look down on you. It's the mocha. <laughs> Do you know why I looked... Who, who, Who's, who's brave enough to admit they're mocha people? <laughs> now, I'll, I'll tell you why, why mocha is a problem. Mocha is for people who cannot decide whether they want coffee or chocolate. Right? You've you, you just got you to commit. Right? Don't try and have a bit of coffee and have a bit of chocolate. You don't put the two together. Coffee is too pure, too wonderful to be mixed in with Chocolate. And if you're a chocoholic, chocolate is probably too wonderful and too pure to be mixed with chocolate, just, I mean coffee, just decide whether you want coffee or chocolate, don't try to have both, all right? Now that I've made fun of you, how's a joke, it's okay. Mocha is actually, for many people, a gateway drug. <laughs> you know, I can't really take the strong coffee, but then I'll start with mocha, and before you know it, you're on to the strongest stuff. Um, But seriously, though, mocha is a little bit of, um, I think, a little bit of a a metaphor for the problem, I think, in Christianity across especially our country and the Western world. I think a lot of people want a mocha Christianity. What what do I mean by a mocha Christianity? Well, uh, a while ago a song by a group called Casting Crowns, I think their lyrics capture what I will call a mocker christianity. Look what it says. Somewhere between the hot and the cold. Somewhere between the new and the old. Somewhere between who I am and who I used to be. Somewhere in the middle you'll find me. Somewhere between the wrong and the right. Somewhere between the darkness and the light. Somewhere between who I was and who you're making me somewhere in the middle, you'll find me. Just how close can I get, Lord, to my surrender without losing all control? That's mocker Christianity. I don't want all of it, I want some of it. I want to be somewhere in the middle. And I want to say, and I hope you've seen even from Deuteronomy, how much God is against that kind of Christianity. Double-minded, half-hearted, neither hot nor cold, lukewarm. Remember, that's what we looked at last week. God commanded His people to love Him with all their hearts, all their soul, all their strength, or single-minded, whole-hearted, unreserved love. Now, as we come to Deuteronomy 7, it's still about that. Remember, Deuteronomy is about decision time. Forty years after they were rescued from slavery, Israel gets another chance to go into the land that God has promised them. And they're on the edge again, but they will have to conquer it. God has given it to them, He's promised it to them, but they have to go in and take it from the inhabitants that currently are in the land. They have to make it theirs. But here's the thing, they have to do it in such a way that will make sure their love for their God, Yahweh, the Lord, wouldn't be contaminated, wouldn't be watered down, wouldn't get mixed in or dragged away with the other gods and the idolatry worship and the unfaithfulness that characterizes the people of the land then. And that's really Deuteronomy 7 is continuing that idea, but particularly applied to conquest. Now, I want to say this is a hard passage. This is a really hard passage. I was almost tempted to skip over seven, jump to eight this week. Because the kind of war, if you have your Bibles open, the kind of war that God commands in the first few verses, you'll notice is total destruction. And post 9-11, it's kind of a scary idea, right? Because this sounds a lot like ethnic cleansing or genocide or holy war or or is this a a Jewish version of jihad? What do we make of passages like this? And it's also in Exodus and it's also in Joshua, What do we make of passages like this? How do we apply it? How do we justify it? Now, I want to get to that, and I will give you a hint that this is not how it's going to apply to us today. Definitely not. But even as we say it's not going to apply to us like that today, I do want to say Deuteronomy 7, like every part of God's Word, applies to people still in different ways. And the way it's going to apply to Christians, followers of Jesus today, is still just as radical, even if it's not about war and destruction of people, okay? So I hope you're ready, because we're going to open the Bible in Deuteronomy 7. We're going to walk through some of the reasons behind God's commands, but we're also going to end by seeing how God is going to speak radically into our lives. So I hope you're ready to do that. So let's pray, and let's get prepared for God to speak to us. Why don't you pray with me? Why don't you take a moment, just in your hearts, to ask God to reveal himself to you today? And so Father, I pray, that you might be so real among us as this passage of Scripture is preached and explained and taught even the bits that are really difficult and uncomfortable, that you would be so real amongst us that we are in no doubt that you are speaking to us today. Not just to get us to understand why you might have commanded this thousands of years ago, but more importantly, get us to hear what you want to be saying to us today. So Father, use my words and please speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please, you need your outlines today because it's going to be quite important as we work through it. Um, for The difficult and objectionable bits I will get to in point number two, but it's really important for us to find the guts of this passage. Deuteronomy 7, again, keep it open. The guts of the passage is in verse 6. Have a look at verse 6 with me. God says to Israel, "...for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people." His treasured possession. Okay, that first word is really important, verse six. For this is the reason. The commands that come before it about destroying the nations in Canaan, the promised land. The reason is in verse 6. For they are a people holy to Yahweh their God. So we gotta understand what holiness is, don't we? The word holy means to be set apart. Right, you got that? To be set apart. To be set apart, to be special to God, to be specially used for His purposes. That's what the word holy means. Um, Who has a Nintendo Switch at home? Hands up. I do. Well, my kids do. I wish I could say they're the only ones who play it, but anyway. You know, a Nintendo Switch, like any gaming console, is actually a computer, right? It's a computer. That's what it is. It's a computer. But it's a computer that's especially used for games. If you like, it's set apart for games. It's a computer, but it's set apart, it's wholly for games. And so it would be inappropriate, um, I gather if you could hack it, you could still do it, but it, you, you don't use a Nintendo Switch to do your uni assignments on, do you? Like you would your other computers. You don't even use it for video editing, like you would your other computers. You don't, certainly don't use it to do accounting and spreadsheets spread with Microsoft Excel on your Nintendo Switch. I mean, way to ruin a console, right? That's not what it's for, because it's holy for games, set apart for games. Now, that's what the word holy means. Israel are set apart for God. They're holy to God. They're chosen by Him. They're chosen for Him in order that they might be, says verse 6, His treasured possession. In other words, they're special to Him in a way that no other nation on earth was at that point in time. Just a side note, if you are a follower of Jesus, the same language is applied to you today. Okay, We're talking about Israel back then, but if you're a follower of Jesus, God applies the same language to you. That if you're a Christian and you're no longer needing to be Jewish at all, are you? All right? I don't think anyone here is. But if you're a follower of Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1 says that God chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy to Him. That we were predestined To be adopted as his sons and daughters. We are his treasured possessions. If you're a follower of Jesus, isn't it good to be holy? Because that's what it means. You belong to God in a really special way. So coming back to Israel, why is Israel special? Why are they holy out of all the peoples of the earth? Why them? Is it because they're better than other nations? They just happen to be better looking? God said, I'm going to choose a race. They're going to be the good looking race. Is that why? They're more deserving because, you know, they've been really, really good. And that's why God chose them. Well, look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Why did God choose them? Why are they holy? Well, the answer is what? It's kind of a strange answer. God, why is Israel special? The answer is really because God decided it would be that way, right? Why did God love you? Because God chose to love you. That's really the answer. He chose to love them just because. Just because. Nothing in them, nothing because of them. He loves them because He loves them because He loves them. That's the kind of answer is giving. Now I want to say at this point, if we are to be assured of God's love today, if you are a loved child of God, and all Christians are, it must be the same reason as well. Because think about it, if God loves you for any reason that has to do with you or me, our performance, our goodness, our church attendance, then you know what you will never be able to be certain, right? If God loves you for any other reason than because he loves you, then because of his love and his initiative and his choice, then you can never be certain. And I want to say some of you actually live in that kind of cloud. Some of you, though you might know this in your heart, you live with uncertainty in your Christian lives. It's almost as if you have a good week as a Christian, you feel like God loves you more. You have a bad week as a Christian, maybe you mess up in a big way, maybe you forgot to do your quiet times, and you feel like God loves you less. That's not the way the Bible talks about God's love. God loves you because He loves you because He loves you. It's His initiative. He guarantees it. It doesn't matter what you do. If you are a child of God, if, you, if you're His, right, it's not because of your performance, not because of you. He loves you because He loves you because He loves you. All right. Now, coming back, understanding these verses, 6, 7, and 8, is really key to understanding the rest of the chapter because being holy, right, the who you are, they are holy as Israel, has implications for how they live and how they act. Who you are, has implications for how you live. Because when you are set apart for God, and you realize that God who brought you to himself and sets you apart for himself is pure. He lives in unapproachable light, says the Bible. He is just. He always does the right things. And he is loving. Then if you're holy to him and set apart for him, then you have got to be pure and just and holy and righteous and loved. Do you see what I mean? And that's why holiness is not just who you are, it becomes a way of life. It's not just something that happens to you once in the past, God makes you holy and that's it. No, 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 it's going to affect every day in the future and the present. You are holy to God, therefore you must live and act in holy ways, appropriate ways, just like it's inappropriate to take your Nintendo Switch to use as a computer for spreadsheets, so it's inappropriate for God's holy people to be just like all the other nations around who aren't holy. Okay, now you see where this is going. So let's go to point number two. Because in that context, one way that Israel were to apply holiness is how they were to now conquer and possess the promised land, the land of Canaan. And verse two, you saw it there. We won't read it all again. It's it's pretty strong language. Verse two says, you must destroy them totally. That's capturing... A couple of particular words, but really one word at the root of the two words in the Hebrew. That word, if you want to learn some Hebrew, it's a nice word there. It's called cherem. Right? It's a ch- that sound. You get to do a bit of spitting when you say it. Cherem. Right? That word has religious and ceremonial ideas. When it says you must destroy them totally, the root of it is cherem. Um, I'll call it, consecration destruction, right? It's not the best word for it, but I'll call it consecration destruction. To consecrate is actually to make something sacred. It's part of the word consecrate, right? The word sacred is sort of part of that. So to consecrate is make something sacred or make something holy, right? So a consecration destruction is Like, again, that idea of holy is to set apart, right? So a a destruction that is consecrating means that as you destroy, you are setting it apart, what you're destroying, giving it over to God. That's the intrinsic meaning of harem, all right? Other writers call it a sacred ban or some other, anyway. But the idea there is that in your destruction and what they were about to do, it was a giving over totally to God. And so here's the really difficult thing to, to, to now really understand for us, because for that, for, for this command, men, not just the men, not just the fighting men, even, all, all men, civilians, but not just the men, it was the women as well, who obviously weren't fighting. It wasn't just the men and women It was the children as well. And not just the men, women, and children. It was the animals as well. And it wasn't just the people of these towns and cities. It was buildings as well. It was their gold. It was their silver. It was everything. Harem, consecration, destruction, was like a scorched earth policy. It was meant to be no survivors. Not even any plunder. Everything consecrated, given over in destruction to God. It was annihilation. It was destroying religion, culture, everything. Now that's heavy, isn't it? That just sounds so wrong. And of course, it's understandable and reasonable to ask how How is this even in the Bible? Are we even talking about the same God? Well, you know what? I don't have all the answers. And the answers that I will try to give may not satisfy everyone. And certainly something that is one of the biggest wrestling points in the whole Bible, these kind of commands. I have put down on your um, outline a URL URL. It's a photocopy of a chapter of a commentary that has more detailed helpful answers, stuff that I won't cover. Um, it's quite a long article. Please feel free to refer to it if you want further reading. But let me give you just four things to keep in mind. Again, this probably won't satisfy all of our objections and problems. See it as a beginning. So these four things under point two, A, B, and C, and D. Firstly, these commands, we firstly need to see are unique and unrepeatable. This kind of war, consecration, destruction, only applied to wars for Israel to take these Canaanite cities and lands and nations that God had promised to give to His people Israel. Only these, no more. It was applicable to no other time in Israel's history, both before or after this. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, we won't look to it, but in Deuteronomy 20, God will give them general instructions about war and towards the end talk about this kind of war again. But the context is general instructions about war. And so if Israel were to, for example, choose to to conquer other cities and lands that weren't part of these specific cities and lands in, in Canaan, then they could do that. But first, they would have to offer peace. And they would have to accept surrender if the city was able to surrender. And if that was the case, they were to spare people. And, but if they do have to you know, go to war, they could only kill the men who fought in the war. They couldn't kill the women, the children. They couldn't scorch earth and everything. In fact, Deuteronomy 20 even speaks about preserving trees because God cares even about the environment. All right, That was their general commands about war. It was actually, by ancient standards, very, very, very humane. Very tame. And so, these commands about this kind of war were exceptions. They were unique and unrepeatable. Now, here's the reason why. Um, that, See, the Old Testament shows that Yahweh, the Lord, is actually not just Israel's king, but king over the whole earth. There's only one God. We saw that last week. The Lord is one. And so the whole earth belongs to Him. And so the whole earth is His to give to the various nations. Right? That's the Old Testament picture of God. And when God gives it to them, the land, whatever land it is, these nations, and not just Israel, but any nations, are stewards, not owners. All right, Australia, we steward this land we don't own it. In fact, you want to say we actually, it's, it's the indigenous Australians who were given the land and we kind of just took it from them, right? But wherever nations are, they only steward the lands, not own them. And this was not only applied to Israel. In Deuteronomy chapters 1 to 3, and we didn't look at it in detail, but back then there was reference to a couple of different nations Moab, Ammon, and Edom. And it was really interesting because Israel were not to go to war against these nations and take their lands. And the reason is because God had already apportioned and assigned those lands to these nations. All right? That's the general picture of nations in relation to land, not just Israel, but all nations. But at that exact period of time, in those exact circumstances, God had decided that the land of Canaan were to be given now to His special people. And He had decided that the way it would happen is in this special, unrepeatable, unique way through harem, consecration, destruction. Now, it's still hard to stomach, but we've got to understand that this was particularly a unique and unrepeatable command, right? Right? And it's certainly not to be repeated in their history after this, and it's certainly not to be applied to us in that way. Okay, so that's the first thing. These commands are unique and unrepeatable. The second thing, there is a bigger story of salvation. Remember, we are here talking about war. And even if we're talking about Deuteronomy 20, standard war, we're still talking about war. And here's the thing, right? There is no such thing as a good war, is there? Now... Back in the 90s, the first war that, that really was broadcast on our screens in a really kind of new technology way was Operation Desert Storm 1, all right, when the US first led to invade um, Iraq. And Desert Storm, if those of you remember, and every war since, you see those footages, right, the satellite images, sometimes often black and white, of smart bombs being delivered and blowing up a place, but you don't see any bodies. It's very clinical, it's very clean. And nowadays it's done by drones. And it gives the impression, because it's a big PR exercise, of course, yeah? Gives the impression that this is what war is like now. And of course, it's a lie, because really, there is nothing clean about war, is it? We're talking about war. War is death. Deuteronomy 7 reminds us, because it's talking about war, in fact, any war, that we are in a world that's full of death and full of wars today as well as back then and we so we've got to remember that the reason why any of this is taking place is because we live in a fallen world yeah we're reminded in the midst of these commands about particular kinds of wars but any wars that we live on the other side of the garden of eden of the paradise and so we remember that Deuteronomy 7 is part of a larger story of salvation, of God addressing the bigger problem, not just of war, but the fact that even death is in our world. And that story started in Genesis, yeah? God has a plan to reverse not just one war, but all wars. Not just to get rid of one sinful nation, but to reverse all of sin, to restore all that was lost. And you've got to remember the, the big story of salvation involved this people Israel so let's remember that Israel why was Israel chosen why were they holy to God why did God set his love on them well, it was because he has a purpose for them and the purpose is this salvation for the entire world right right from the beginning God's choice of the people Israel had to do with salvation for all the other nations outside of Israel Through blessing Israel, every nation would one day get blessed. Sin would be reversed. Paradise would be restored. And so the prophet Isaiah speaks of the time when all the nations would stream to Israel to hear about and to meet and to get to know the one and true only God, the Lord. That was the purpose of Israel. And here's the thing, right? For Israel to fulfill that calling and purpose, it could not do it if it was like the rest of the world. That is key. If Israel was just like all the other nations who didn't know God, didn't worship God, or mixed it in like a sort of mock Christianity, then it could not fulfill its purpose. Because the attraction of the nations to Israel was through sanctification. Big words there. Sanctification means... To be made holy. They were to attract the nations by her holiness. By the presence of the holy God in their midst. By God making His people and their land and especially their temple like a new garden of Eden. Eden 2.0 we'll call it. That was God's purpose of salvation. And here is why consecration destruction, harem, is particularly a religious idea. Alright, Look at verse 5. Oh, sorry, verse 25. The image, so this is towards the end of the chapter. We didn't read it earlier. Have a look at this. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them. Do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it. For it is detestable to the Lord your God. See, this is why it was a complete destruction. Not just people, but also buildings. They weren't to take plunder, no silver, no gold, nothing, because everything was religious and everything could entice and lead God's holy people away from their God. And remember, there's a bigger story of salvation. So salvation of the world was at stake. If Israel could not get it right here, if it could not remain pure and holy as it came into this land, Worshipping all these other gods where every building and everything, every silver gold item was religious in nature. Every family, every cultural element was religious in nature and it wasn't religion that was holy to God. If it failed here, it would just become like the rest of the world and the rest of the world's salvation was at stake. Okay, You see the biggest storyline. It's a little bit like cleaning out a wound. Imagine you have a pussy, disgusting, festering wound. That's what you wanted to hear on a Sunday morning, right? and it was infected, and it smelled bad, and it was gross. Now, what would you do? Imagine if you didn't have antibiotics, all right? What would you do? You would have to clean it out, and cleaning out that wound is going to be painful because you're going to have to get rid of all the foreign, germy, disgusting bacterial elements. You would have to get rid of all the pus, and you would have to dig, right? And it would be painful, but without that, you couldn't, possibly heal. The salvation of the world depended on a clean start for Israel. That's one of the key points to remember. The next point though, not just a bigger story of salvation, there is also a bigger story of judgment. A bigger story of judgment. Let me take you forward to Deuteronomy chapter 9. I'll show it on the screen. A few chapters on, look what God says. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take in possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At that unique, unrepeatable time, God was using Israel as an instrument of judgment against a particularly wicked people. You got that? At that unrepeatable, unique time, God was using Israel as an instrument of judgment to a particularly wicked people. See, for God to devote a people to complete destruction means, here's the thing. I don't think we have any idea of the wickedness of the people that were at that time. It must have been at a scale that we cannot even possibly imagine. Because here's the thing. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, it only happened two other times. One was when God sent the flood. And the only other time was when He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know the Bible stories, you'll know what I mean. He has only done it in those two other times. And He has not done it at any other time in history past, both during the Bible and afterwards. None. No other time. This week I was hearing a podcast about a a Christian agency called International Justice Mission, and they were especially rescuing children from cyber sex trafficking and slavery in Southeast Asia. So heartbreaking. The youngest they've ever rescued is a baby. Just think about that. People have sold babies to be abused. And here's the other disturbing thing we found out. I found out as I listened to the podcast. 70% of all cyber sex trafficking abuse that now happens online with millions of children all around the world, 70% is by their own family members. The people who sell them to be abused are mums and dads, and uncles, and aunties, and grandparents. In Africa, you know of child soldiers, children taught to kill. And these same children taught to kill, to abduct and rape schoolgirls. This is our world. And yet, in none of these times did God ever destroy these nations completely. I mean, you think of the depth of wickedness of this incident in Southeast Asia, of child. yet God has not wiped them out. So how bad must have been, do you see what, I mean, what I'm getting at? How bad must have these Canaanite cities, cultures, people have been? I don't think we have any concept of how wicked it was that God would be willing to destroy them completely. And I think you get an insight into the fact that God was patient. Back in Genesis 15, when God was promising Abraham, who becomes the father of the Israelite nation, he says, As the sun was setting, Abraham Abraham, fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Here's the promise. The Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated. He's prophesying about Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slave, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, that's you, Abraham, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, or otherwise he means here 400 years later, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites, another word for Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. That is a really important passage, isn't it? It's saying that God waited 400 years Between Abraham and the conquest, to wait patiently for four generations and more until the sins of these people in ancient Canaan reach an unbearable state that it would have affected not just men, women, but also children, all generations, all culture, that it would require that kind of destruction and judgment. We have archaeological evidence of. One of the gods the Canaanites worshipped, its name is Moloch or Molech. It's a big bronze statue they would set up. like It looks like a bull. They would heat the statue from underneath so that it was raging hot and they would sacrifice children by taking babies and children and putting it on the hot bronze hands of the god and watch the child incinerate. And that was their religion. Make no mistake, these nations were saturated with wickedness to a degree that we, I don't think we could even understand if we tried. And God is saying, time is up. Time is up. And so here's the thing. If we have a problem with Deuteronomy 7, well, actually, probably our bigger problem is the fact that God judges at all. <laughs> yeah? Our problem is probably, should God judge at all? I mean, if He's a God of love, should there be any sort of judgment but again, within the bigger picture of salvation, my former point, God cannot be loving if He were not just, yeah? If you leave a sin infected world like it is, it's like a wound that is still diseased, and you do not clean it out, there's no judgment, there's no cleansing, that would be unloving. God cares too much about His world to leave it as it is. That's where judgment comes in. It's not opposite to love. It is because He loves. And I just want to make a final note there. God's justice is absolute, as in He doesn't play favorites. There's no double standards for His people. Um, Remember verse 9, back to chapter 7, verse 9. Look there, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commands. But those who hate Him, He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. He's not now talking about the Canaanites. He's talking to his own people, Israel. He's saying, my love is proportionally much greater to my judgment, but I will also judge my own people. I don't play favorites when it comes to judgment. And you know what? Fast forward, Israel does not do as they're commanded. So with these commands of uh, Canaanite cities to be uprooted, conquered, we probably know of less than half a dozen that they actually did that to. And so in fact when they end up going into the land, the religions of these nations were not uprooted like God commanded them. And the result was exactly what God said would happen, they would get contaminated. And even gods like Moloch, that big bull god that they offer sacrifice children to, that became part of the religion of Israel. Israelite kings, even Solomon, the great king, ended up worshipping Moloch, presumably offered children as sacrifices to this pagan god. And so just as Yahweh gave the land of the wicked Canaanites away because of their wickedness, so a thousand years or so later, he would spit his own people out of their land for their wickedness because he doesn't play favorites. He is just. And so the fourth thing I want to say under this, The Old Testament is a shadow and the New Testament is the reality. The biggest story of salvation and judgment come together in Jesus. And this is where we stand and this is really important for us. We don't take any part of the Old Testament, we just apply it directly to us. And those who say, oh, this is a holy war passage and we ought to do the same, they don't understand the Bible and they certainly don't understand God and they certainly don't understand Jesus. Jesus. Because what Jesus has done for the world through His death and resurrection is all the difference in the world. See, God's plan to bring salvation through Israel as a nation, as a geopolitical entity, that is now over. It's been fulfilled. That's why it's over. It was fulfilled and completed when Jesus, the perfect Son of Israel, was born. And so God's plan of salvation no longer is about Israel's status as a geopolitical nation in a physical geopolitical land in the promised land of Canaan. No, no, it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. And why we cannot take Deuteronomy 7 as a command of a holy war today is because on the cross, Jesus has done what Israel couldn't do. He has completely and utterly solved the problem of sin. Salvation comes to us, though, Because judgment came to Jesus. You see, this is what happens on the cross. On the cross, God places himself under the harem. That's what's going on on the cross. He places himself. Jesus willingly goes under that kind of destruction, the consecration destruction, the harem. He bears the sins of the world and he is utterly destroyed as a sacrifice so that sin could be utterly and completely paid for. And it is exhausted when he said, it is finished. That's what's going on on the cross. And that's why we can only have clarity when we see the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And so this kind of command has already been fulfilled in the death of Jesus on the cross. Today, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, know this. God has taken everything you owe him, and Jesus has paid for it willingly on your behalf. If you've not yet given your life to Jesus, received his salvation, his offer, because judgment came on him so that you would never have to take it, then today is your opportunity to come and speak to myself, come and speak to Pastor Marshall, if that's you. All right, my final point. Here's the thing the way and the only way Deuteronomy speaks to us today about war is not about taking up arms and invading countries. The only way it speaks to us is about our war with the sin in our lives as we live out being God's holy people, okay? It's the only way that we can apply it today. And you see that come together in a place like 1 Peter 2. Have a look at this. This is such an important passage because you'll you'll notice echoes of Deuteronomy 7, won't you? But you are a chosen people which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Holiness still matters. In fact, holiness matters more because holiness for Christians is not about externals, but about internals. And the war is being raged on our souls. And so the war that we need to take The Deuteronomy 7 idea about the only war that we need to wage is against sin in our lives. And that is, in fact, how Jesus talks about it. Right? Remember, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? You gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? You cut it off. He is using radical war language. The Apostle Paul says, you put to death whatever belongs to your flesh. Theologian John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So my question to you, friends, is if you're a follower of Jesus, are you that radical with sin in your life? Are you that radical with sin in your life? That you would want to completely uproot, destroy, annihilate any hint of sin when God shows it to you? Or do we settle for some sort of lukewarm, double-minded, half-hearted, mocker Christianity. I've realized recently that being on Facebook, Instagram, social media was doing me no favors when it came to envy, discontent, judgmentalism, anger, bitterness, sometimes even lust, So I've decided just to stop. It's hard to begin with because your your fingers are used to scrolling. Spare time? Turn on Facebook, turn on Instagram, see what's going on. There's some good things about it, keeping in touch with people and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? For us, and this is for me, for my wife, we both decided to just didn't need it. And we needed to be radical with it. What is it for you? May not be that. But are you serious about killing sin in your life? But also, we have a war against compromise. See, the purpose of this kind of war in Deuteronomy 7 is that idea of no compromise, no mocker, no taint, no contamination. We are not going to be able to speak powerfully and prophetically to a world in need of Jesus if we keep having this kind of mocker compromising Christianity. And I just want to pick up one thing that is mentioned in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, chapter 7, verse 3. talks about not intermarrying. We need to be thinking about our relationships and dating when it comes to compromise. We need to be especially thinking about marriage. If you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot pursue love for God with all of your heart, soul, strength, strength, as an individual, but particularly as a family, if your spouse does not love God with all of their heart, soul, and strength. Now, I'm going to be careful here. I'm not talking to people who are already married. So you may be married and only since then have become a follower of Jesus, or maybe you just didn't know at the time and you, you got married, or you didn't think it was important. Maybe it's the first time you've even heard that Christians are commanded to marry Christians. And if that's you and you're already married and, and your spouse is an unbeliever, or maybe your spouse used to be a believer, become an unbeliever, God wants you to honor that marriage. That's still really important, right? It's not an excuse to separate or divorce just because of that. And you're to trust him, you're to keep pursuing him, you're to keep leading your kids as much as you can, a bit like a single parent when it comes to Christianity, to love him as much as you love him, right? That's how you honor God. But here's the thing for those who have a choice, whether you are single, now divorced, or your spouse has passed away, the New Testament is clear when you have a choice, you marry in the Lord, you do not compromise. And I wonder if there's going to be enough people here who are so serious about this that they will say to themselves and say to God, I would rather be single than compromise on that. Let me tell you the story of James. James was a vocal atheist as a young man going into the workforce all his life. Well read. He liked to debate Christians and tell Christians how much They didn't know, and he read and he knew much more than the Christians did. So he would debate them, he would defeat them in debate. He was an ardent atheist, but he was also a very moral atheist. He tried very hard, he was Chinese, to live in the way that was, you know, right and morally good. And he thought, I don't need to be a Christian to be moral. And then he met a colleague. Was a Christian, an older colleague. This colleague couldn't argue as a Christian. He didn't have the answers. Uh, He wasn't the kind you get into a debate with because he was pretty ordinary, pretty plain. But he lived in such a way that day in and day out, as he worked with his older colleague, James saw that this colleague had something that he didn't have. There was a genuine integrity, there was a genuine love, there was a genuine holiness. And a life that James, with all of his effort as an atheist, could not possibly live. Even though he tried to be moral, he knew that more often than not he was failing. But as he saw this colleague, who never once debated him, just worked out how to care for him and love him and just be a Christian around him, James eventually softened and thought, there's got to be something to this. And he was attracted by this colleague's holiness. And James became a Christian. That's my dad. And had my dad not become a Christian through this colleague, humanly speaking, neither would our family. Remember, Israel were commanded to do this for a missionary reason. And 1 Peter says it too, right? He called you out of darkness to declare his praises. Live such good lives among the pagans so that they can see your good deeds and glorify God. This command is for the sake of the world. Now for Israel, it was about the world coming to them. For us, it's about us going into the world. But you see, the world is only going to be attracted to Jesus through us as God's people if we are holy, set apart from God, radical about killing sin in our lives, radical about not compromising. You do not need to be cool. The world does not need cool Christians who are just as social media savvy as they are, but compromise in all the ways that they do. That is not going to attract people to Jesus. By the way, if you happen to be cool and holy, good on you. I'm not one of them, right? But you see my point? The world is going to be attracted to Jesus if you, like my dad's colleague, is able to be holy and live such distinct and good lives amongst a world that is corrupt and broken and dark that you can shine as a light. So do it for your sake to honor God, but do it for the sake of the world and be radical about sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would now speak so deep into our hearts, Father. Reveal areas of our lives that we know right now we need to be radical with it, with the sin in our lives or with the compromise in our lives. Help us to do this because you love us and you got radical about sin in order to die for it. And help us to do it because we want to be in a longing world, a desperate world, and need to meet Jesus, but they're only going to meet Jesus and be attracted to Jesus through our holiness.